0: In January of 1850, a teenage boy was walking the streets of London in the midst of a brutal snowstorm. And he decided to get himself out of the storm by slipping into a chapel where a worship service was taking place. He actually describes it. He says the storm was so bad that the pastor wasn't there that day. He must have gotten snowed in. And so he describes, he says, a, a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, something like that, was the one who stood to lead the service and preach the sermon. This young man said, Thankfully, he stuck to his text. And this was the passage he read from the prophet Isaiah. The preacher stood and said, Look unto me and be ye saved. Look unto me and be ye saved. So the sermon was pretty straightforward. Notice the first word is, look. We are to turn our attention to what God says to us. Look unto me and be ye saved. And the, the preacher began to describe the hope that we find in Christ. Look unto me. I died on the cross for you. Look unto me. I shed my blood for you. And it was just a small group of people gathered in the service. And so this young man stood out at the back, and the preacher looked at him and said, young man, look Unto Christ and be saved. The reason we know that story is because it was repeated frequently by that young man, Charles Spurgeon, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, a man who would preach before tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions in his lifetime, came to know the gospel because of a snowstorm. He wasn't planning to be in church. The preacher was not prepared. But you see, it was the message of the text which transformed him. And it's probably not the storm that blew you in here. You actually had to do extra to get yourselves here today. But maybe maybe you were here with just the same kind of God-inspired moment to hear the Word of God for this to be the day of salvation. See, the reason we turn in our Bibles to read, and so I want you to turn to Genesis 17, the reason we turn in our Bibles to read is because we expect to hear God speak. We expect to find truth when we turn in Scripture. So turn with me to Genesis 17. Genesis is the very first part of the Bible. The opening story of how God chose one man, Abram. And through Abram, he was going to bless all Now, we looked at this in the fall, but but as, as you jump in with me here in Genesis 17, this is one of those pivotal chapters of Scripture where God makes huge promises to Abraham, even in the face of Abraham's unbelief. So I'm going to read the opening section, really the first 19 verses of Genesis 17. This is God's Word. It has power to transform us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes. But your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. This is God's word, which has truth for us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as I pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are the God who reveals yourself. You're the God who makes yourself known. So even as we gather today to hear your word, Lord, I ask that you would change our hearts. Lord, for those who come in today with questions, with doubts, with with fears about whether or not what is spoken to us could be true, Lord, I pray that you would show us the truth. For those of us who, who long to, to, to cling to these words of hope and yet see the sorrow around us, Lord, give us comfort today. Let your word be heard, as we have already sung your truth and proclaimed it, announced it in our creeds, heard it read to us in your scriptures. Now, Lord, let it be clear to us in the preaching of your word. Father in heaven, we come in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I have a memory from a family gathering that I suspect is so trivial that everyone else who was there completely forgets it. But it was important to me. I was probably eight or nine years old on the sidewalk in front of my grandparents' house. Family was out gathered, and, and in, in, the, in the sky we noticed going around this, this spotlight, kind of this, you know, maybe announcing the opening of a car dealership nearby or something, but, but you could kind of see it, like the bat signal catching the clouds. And I remember remember saying, oh, look, 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 there's a a flashlight in the sky. Which was the wrong word to pick. But then one of my uncles laughed at me. And kind of elbowed and jostled the the other adult men gathered there. And I shrank. Now, I suspect none of them even remember the moment. It was so ordinary, so trivial, and yet, does someone laugh at you? I mean, it can be demoralizing, deflating. Because in in the mockery, it wasn't just the like, oh, it wasn't that cute. He he just picked the wrong word. No, it was, it felt to me much m- much more painful, much deeper. And that that kind of laughter, that laughter of derision, that laughter of of mocking, that's, that's the laughter we find in Genesis 17. God announces to Abraham these huge promises, and then Abraham laughs at God. I mean, Look, look back again at, at verse 17 of chapter 17. Abraham, having heard the promise that the blessing would come through Sarah, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will the son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And then as we continue, and, and I didn't read this yet, but, it, but as the story continues, God appears again in chapter 18. Another appearance of God where he reiterates this promise now for Sarah to hear. She's, she's inside the tent, but God is speaking to Abraham so that Sarah will hear. And so, so look with me at chapter 18, verse 10. This is the Lord speaking so that Abraham and Sarah will hear. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself. As she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Do you see what's taking place? God has made huge promises. And yet Abraham and Sarah look around and say, wait, you're talking to us. I mean, how old is Abraham? We, we were reminded of this in, in verse 1. He's 99 years old. Now, that also means not only is he 99 years old, but when we read that in verse 1 of our chapter, if we go back just a verse to the end of chapter 16, which for us in kind of our sequence jumps us all the way back into November, but we're just a verse removed, we, when we last were with Abraham, he was 86 years old, which means we have waited now more than a decade for God to speak more than a decade and the promise still isn't here more than a decade that the only hope for this family is in ishmael because you remember the plan that abraham and abram and sarah came up with when god said you're going to have a child they realized well it can't be with us so they take a maidservant hagar and they have this child and so for these intervening years that has been their only hope and even when Moses, the narrator of this story, tells us in chapter 18, he wants to remind us. I mean, every time it's brought up, we're reminded how old and how unlikely this is to actually happen. Abram himself in chapter 17, verse 17, like, will a son be man to be born a 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child? Even Moses, when he tells us in, in chapter 18, Moses is the narrator of this story for us. In, in verse 11 of chapter 18, we're reminded again, Abram and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. They're too old to have children, and, and and remember, they've tried. This is a lifetime struggle. Sarah has been barren, and then we're reminded in verse 11, not only could she not have children when she was at the age of childbearing, but she is past that age now. So even as we see their laughter, we're being reminded that it actually feels like a normal, ordinary, even appropriate response. What God says sounds like nonsense to them. So much so that that when the New Testament comments on this passage, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 will describe this scenario, and he describes it as a scenario not of just old people, but essentially dead people. In in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, the Apostle Paul describes describes what we're seeing. It says that, that Abraham faced the fact that God was making this promise even though his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was already dead. So you and I are meant to realize how dire the circumstances are. And so maybe you think, well, I wouldn't be dumb enough to laugh in God's face. And I wouldn't be so arrogant as Abraham or Sarah. And yet, the promise that has just been made, that seems like, in some ways, the only reasonable response. Because maybe for you, when you look out at your circumstances and you're trying to figure out all, that, all that's gone wrong in life, all of the things that are arrayed against you, all of the sorrow and sadness, all of the pain, all of the suffering, and you think, well, what God says, I— Maybe I even believe them in, in, in general terms. I'm okay singing the hymns of the church. I'm okay saying the creeds of the church, but but I'm not sure they're true for me. I mean, maybe they're true for the people sitting around me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Maybe they're they're true in the general sense, but but have you looked at my life? Or maybe you feel the weight of sin and shame. And so you think, well. How could God's forgiveness come to me? How could God be good to me? How could I even hear God's promises now? And that's really what Genesis 17 and 18 show us. Pictures of God's promises. God's love. Think of the promises that we have in this chapter. Just just go right back to the beginning with me. In verse 2. When God speaks to Abraham, he says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase. I will increase your numbers. He he repeats that in verse 6, this idea that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations. He he says in verse 6, I will make you fruitful. Taking the language from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, when God planted Adam and Eve in a garden and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now that is going to be fulfilled in Abraham physically. He will be one who becomes fruitful. So much so that, that his name is actually changed from Abram to Abraham, which is, sounds like the father of many nations. That's what his name means. God says in verse 6, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. This promise, then, is not just a promise for Abraham, but a promise for the generations which will come. A promise, verse 7, which will last forever. An everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant. God even reminds Abraham, like he had said back in chapter 12, that the land in which he now lives as a wanderer, a man who doesn't own land, this will be his. God is saying, I will be your God. I will be the God of your son. I will be the God of your grandson and great-grandson. I will be your God. You belong to me. So, But it's not even those promises in the abstract that prompt the laughter. It's the promise specifically that Sarah will have a son. That this is what, what prompts the laughter, that, that it will be through a physical heir that God will keep his promises to Abraham and Sarah. And, and and even as I read, you may have noticed in this passage the word which was repeated again and again, the word covenant. God has established a covenant with Abraham, and we even saw that in, back in chapter 15, but it's it's a word that's repeated again and again and again in this passage. A covenant is a is a relationship established and confirmed by promises that are being made. So in the ancient world, you could have a, a great and grand king who maybe rules over a, a, giant, a giant nation or even an empire who makes a covenant with the guy who rules this little city. And it means the guy who has more power is the guy who gets to set the rules. So much so that, that one commentator summarizes and, and gives us just a quick definition that a covenant is essentially a relationship based on surrender of control. A covenant is a relationship based on surrender of control. Because as the one who is having a covenant made with you, you aren't really in position to kind of say, well, you know, let me, let's change the terms around a little bit. No, if the great king with his giant army doesn't like the terms you have set, what will he do? get the archers ready. We're going to impose my terms of the covenant on you. See, and, and maybe you've, you've, you've wandered in today, and, you, and your kind of view of God is that, that, that you would believe in God if he acted a certain way. But, but notice how God shows up in this passage. He shows up and establishes a covenant. He sets the rules. He sets the guidelines. And, and maybe it's because you and I sometimes treat whether or not we'd believe in God like he's interviewing for a job with us. Like, well, you know, let me, let me see if, you know, do you meet my qualifications here? You know, I have a list of things that I expect out of God. And, and we kind of run through them, and we check to make sure he aligns with what, what we want out of God. And, and then we find, well, they're, ooh, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. I really don't think you're going to be, get to be God. See, the problem with, with that kind of view the view that says, well, I would believe God if he acted this way. I would trust in God if he agreed with me on this moral question. See, the problem with that, if, if your list of expectations is fully met in the God who comes to you to interview, then you don't actually have God in front of you. You just have a projection of yourself. You're just staring in a mirror agreeing with yourself. See, when God shows up, he shows up and announces who he is. See, it's not so much your opinion that matters as it is the reality of who God is. I was having lunch this week with one of my good friends. I I I've, I've told you about him before because we've been friends since the 4th grade. You know, and um, and and this time I mean he brought it up. I didn't bring up Jesus at all. Um, I mean I would have, but he brought it up first. And so he I mean he was he's like so you really like you stand up in front of people and he's he's been a church in the past. He just you stand up in front of people and you actually want them to believe that, like, the nonsense in there is true. That, like, some guy walked on water? Come on, man. Come on, you're not actually asking us to believe that, are you? Come on! I mean, that was his, maybe your response. Come on, you don't really want me to, you don't really want me to believe this. But see, I'm not here to, I'm not here to, to match your opinion with, with, the words here. I, I want your opinion to be changed, to be shaped by what's true. Because when God shows up, it, it is a gracious appearance that in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram. God shows up, but then how does he introduce himself? Look again at verse 1. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, that's the, the common phrase, the, the common description of God, the most common description of God during the, the time of the patriarchs, of Abraham and his sons who will follow him, the father of the nations. This is the most common description. He is the Lord Almighty. See, when he shows up to make a covenant, he does it on his terms. And any covenant here is a gracious covenant. That he's inviting us into relationship. But it means it's a relationship in which you and I are forced to give up control. To stop thinking we can shape this the way we want it. We can, we can mold God in our image. No, God is going to change us. But God is gracious not only in showing up, not only in repeating the promises, but then you notice that he gives Abraham a physical picture, a sign of this covenant an arrow pointing to the truth of what it is, and it's a a physical and bloody act that has to take place. That Abraham and his sons, that all of the men of his household have to have this sign. Yes, it's a bloody and painful ritual. But the previous time God showed up and made this covenant, it was a bloody ritual when animals were sacrificed and, and cut into pieces and God himself passed through and promised that he would keep the covenant. Because the promises that God is making here are, are promises that are gracious. And even giving Abraham a sign, a picture, a reminder, is gracious. So Abraham had to wait these last 13 years without word from God. Just trusting what he'd previously heard. Now, God is giving him a sign that he will be reminded of. That God is a God who keeps his promises. All right, now I, I kind of want to just step aside, kind of from the, the main flow of the sermon here, because we're in Genesis 17. And so as a Presbyterian pastor, I have to stop and talk about how circumcision, this physical act, is, is connected to what we as a church in the New Testament, in the, the new covenant that God has made, do in baptism. All right, so so like if you're, if you're new to church, this is, this is kind of an internal debate. That's like You can listen, because I think it might be helpful to you. but But I'm really talking to like, I'm talking to the choir here, all right? Um, how old is Abraham when he receives the sign of the covenant? He's 99. How old is Ishmael? Now, I didn't actually read this part, but Ishmael gets the sign of the covenant as well. How old is he? He's 13. How old then is an infant child be when he comes? He's eight days, one week old. And so, the picture of the covenant, the sign of the, the promise that God has made is given even to an infant. And you might think, but but an infant, he can't have faith. But that's not what the sign is pointing to. That's, that's not where the arrow points us. The arrow is pointing us to the faithfulness of God. And, and we say the same thing. And, and I would take time to, to do this, but it would really, like now my side would get really long. You can come and sit in on a, on a Sunday school class as I, as I go through this or just follow up with me. That's, that's the same thing we're saying when we, when we bring a child for baptism. No longer a bloody ritual because the blood of Christ has been shed. No longer a ritual limited only to the, the male members of the congregation. It's a ritual now extended to all. But the picture is still a picture of God's faithfulness of God's grace. And and so any objection that you would have to infant baptism, I want to argue, is an objection that would end up knocking down infant circumcision. You should really just get rid of this chapter. Now, otherwise you have to radically separate them and say that, well, no, 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 we're no longer doing anything at all that's any way connected to the promises God made to Abraham. See, so because the sign is not a sign of our faith, of our obedience, of our response. The sign is a sign of God's promise. A promise that God says, I make with you and your descendants after you an everlasting promise. Even though the physical circumcision comes to an end in this New Testament error, the promise of God is an everlasting promise. Okay off of my little Presbyterian soapbox, and back into kind of the main flow of the sermon. God has echoed the promises. He's appeared. He's told Abraham all of the things that that he will do for them. He's given a sign of the promise to be a reminder, but Abraham and Sarah laugh at God's promises. When you get to the specific promise that she is going to have a son, they say, that's too much. Abraham even, even tries to kind of negotiate the terms of the arrangement with God. like God, I, I remember you weren't real happy with what we did with Hagar, but, but it, it worked. Like, I have a son, Ishmael. Why don't we just make the promises that you're talking about now? Let's just put them on him. Like I, God, I think this will let you off the hook from the kind of ridiculous thing you just told me, and well, let's just move forward in this way. And Sarah herself describes herself sadly as, as one who is old and worn out. And she says, so she too laughs at God. But, but this passage again and again shows us that God is more gracious than we can expect than we would have expected, than, than, than we could demand. God, over and over again, shows himself to be forgiving and loving and caring to Abraham and Sarah. He doesn't throw up his hands in exasperation and say, come on, man, I've said this again and again, why aren't you listening to me? No, what does he do? Look, look, at, verse, look at verse 19 in response to Abraham trying to negotiate with him. In verse 19 of chapter 17, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. He repeats the promise to him. Your wife, Sarah, will be the one who will bear the son. Or look at the way that God continues to speak when Sarah laughs at God. Look at chapter 18, verse 13. Why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old. And now verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. In response to the laughter of Abraham, he repeats the promise, Sarah will have a son. In response to the laughter of Sarah, he repeats the promise, Sarah will have a son. He asks the question, with the answer built in, is anything too difficult for God? No, of course not. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the creator, the sustainer, the one who has made this covenant. He will keep his promises. See, that is what God is saying to us. He's changed Abraham's name so that he will be reminded he is the father of many nations. He's changed Sarah's name, although her name probably still means the same thing. She is a princess. He is telling them he is their God. They belong to him. He will be with them and the generations which will follow them. And then, and then notice what, what name are they to give this child of the promise. Look again at chapter 17, verse 19. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. Now, you're not a native Hebrew speaker, I assume. So you might not have heard it. So you might have to use the footnote that's there in your Bible. So go down to the little 19 at the very bottom of your page. What does Isaac mean? Isaac means he laughs. God, responding to that laughter, the arrogant, haughty, unbelief of Abraham, says, you laugh, but I will bring my promises With joy. Sarah, when this child is born, will describe the the laughter of this son, that people will gather with her in joy, laughing at the great blessing that has been given to her. God takes your mockery and your unbelief and He turns it around so that every time, every time Abraham speaks his son's name, he will be reminded of the promises of God. When He holds this infant in His arms and gives him the name Isaac, He'll be reminded of this moment when he laughed at God, but God kept his promises. When he bounces this child on his knee and they giggle together, he'll be reminded that that I laughed at God, and yet God was faithful to me. When he calls him in for dinner as a boy, Isaac, Isaac, I laughed at God, but God now laughs in joy with me. See, that's what the New Testament tells us. I read to you from from Romans 4 where Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, called Abraham and Sarah dead. He says the God, though, is the God who brings new life. And he points us to not merely Isaac as the child of promise, but Jesus as the child of promise. At the end of at the end of chapter 4 in Romans, Paul, making sure that we know that, that what happened to Abraham in the Old Testament was, was written for us, that his picture of responding then by faith to God is the picture for us that, that God is writing to us, to, to whom, for, for us who believe in, in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Do you hear Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead, but God is the God who raises the dead. They received the child of promise. You have the child, the promised one, Jesus. God raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. Paul is saying your sins were paid for by Jesus. His resurrection gives you right standing with God. God asked Abraham in the hearing of Sarah, is anything too difficult for God? No. No, it, 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 it's, a, it, it, it's, it's echoed again then in the story when, when the angel Gabriel appears to a young virgin who is without child, who is given the promise that she will be with a child, a child of promise. She asks, how can it be? And the angel announces the good news. Nothing is impossible with God. See, God is more gracious than we expect him to be. He sends his own son. God responds to our laughter with blessing, with promise, with forgiveness. See, see, don't measure your life by the circumstances around you. Don't measure your hope by what you feel. Measure your hope by what you see to be true in the promises of God. Surrender control to God. That's what it is to enter into a covenant relationship with him. Now, I heard a really powerful sermon this week while I was driving in my car. No, it wasn't one of the podcasts I listened to or one of the, the other local pastors that I'll, that I'll sometimes listen to. It was, it was on the way back from my daughter's book club. She was in a book club. They read a fiction book together with, with other eighth and ninth graders at her school, and I was just asking her, you know, what was the book? And her, her mother, she and her mother are reading the books together so that they can have conversations, but I've kind of been out of the loop. So, so what was the, was the book about? And she describes it. It's a fiction book about a, a, a young adult whose life is so chaotic and feels so out of control that, that she does these radically destructive things to try and grab control in her life. And it's a, a tragic and an overwhelming story almost. And, and I asked Leah, I said what would you say to a friend who felt like that? What would you you want one of your friends who who feels like her life is spinning out of control, who feels hopeless, who's, who's kind of grasping for whatever she can hold on to, what would you want her to hear? And Leah said, I would want her to know that God loves her. But she still feels out of control. What would you say to her? I would say that God is in control. Now, that's a powerful sermon. God loves us, and God is in control. That's what he's telling us in Genesis 17. You laugh, but I am faithful to you. I love you. You feel like the world is out of control, but I am in control. I love you. The promises are true for us today. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the the honesty of your word, that even the great patriarch is shown in his foolishness, laughing at your promises, and yet he exposes our own hearts our own thoughts as we read your word, our our own experiences as we live life in a world that is broken by our sin. Father, I pray for those that are here, that having heard your word announced, we would be reminded of the truth of your gospel. Lord, that we would put our trust wholly and completely in Jesus, our Savior. Father in heaven, we come today asking you to give us faith to believe. Lord, that you would remind us of the promises you have made. Lord, we come today in the name of Jesus, the child of promise. Amen.